0: Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com.
1: <laughs> Good evening. I'm storyteller Otis Gyrie. Your night is about to get a whole lot darker. <laughs> Who needs sleep anyway? Ha ha ha. Good evening. You're listening to Scary Stories Told in the Dark. Welcome to season 9, episode 12. I'm Otis Jiry, your host, and in this episode, I'll be performing five tales to terrify you, courtesy of author Nick Boddock. about mysterious moms, vicious visitors, harmful Halloweeners, caustic critters, and wicked waters. You're listening to the standard edition of tonight's program, If you'd like to show your support and enjoy an extended version of this and other episodes with twice the terror, visit simplyscarypodcast.com and click Patrons in the upper menu to sign up today. Thank you for your support. Now, it's time to take a walk together down the moonlit trail. So, lock your doors, turn your lights down low, and settle in. The show is about to begin. (laughs) <laughs> Moms are always ready with a big hug, a smile, and are always there for their kids. I mean, where would Norman Bates be without his? But it's not always Rice Krispie Treats and snacks for some children... Some mothers have terrible secrets that they can't let anyone know about. Take the mother in this first story from Nick Bottick, who is always behind closed doors. Without further ado, I present to you, Hug Your Mother. I never met my mom. Not really, anyway. She didn't abandon her. She didn't die giving birth. I wasn't put up for adoption. Nothing like that. We lived in the same house for 12 years. Our paths just never crossed, which I guess is because she didn't really have a path. She stayed in one room my entire life. The third door on the left of the hallway in our three-bedroom ranch-style home. A room I wasn't allowed in. The door to Mom's room was different from the rest of the doors in our house. It looked heavier, sturdier, and there were a series of locks on it the keys to which my dad always kept on his person. My dad did an admirable job of balancing her situation and my knowing that she loved me. He would come out of Mom's room and tell me that she'd asked about me, and he would deliver messages from her to me. At least that's what he told me. I suppose I don't have any real way of knowing if she actually asked about me or if he'd told her what I'd said. But I guess it doesn't matter. As a child, I was equal parts terrified and curious as to what my mom did behind that door. There was a constant odor that permeated the house that originated from that room. One so bad it meant we couldn't have company. I had a variety of excuses for why my friends couldn't come over, none of which were, my house smells like something crawled up from something that's somebody's ass died, and then died because my mother is a recluse. In fact, I was under strict instruction by my dad to tell anyone who asked that my mom was dead. She might as well have been. The house probably would have smelled better. In the morning, when I would get up to get ready for school, I'd sometimes see my dad mopping the hallway around the door. He always had some excuse, like he'd spilled something or the ceiling was leaking but I knew better. Something was coming out of my mom's room. Some nights I'd sneak out of bed and peek my head out into the hallway. There was always, day and night, a light emitting from under the door. When I would watch from my room, I'd see pauses in that light, interruptions as though someone was moving around within. I always assumed it was my dad, as he spent most nights behind that thick wooden door. But it was the sounds that would send my mind wandering with images of all manner of violence and horror. Every now and again, a scream would erupt from down the hall. It was guttural, intentional the scream of a woman in fear for her life. There'd be bangs, crashes, the sounds of things breaking and my dad would emerge from my mom's room, breathing heavily, and wiping himself down with a towel, covered in either sweat or water or both or neither, something that made his silhouette glisten in the darkness. Then he would get the mop. When playing outside, if I could find the opportunity, sometimes I'd try to look through the window, which had been covered with a thick comforter. One day however, comforter had been moved every so slightly, allowing a sliver of visibility into the room. I peered through that thin space, my vision obstructed even further by the condensation that had accumulated from within. I could just barely make out the shape of a head resting on a pillow inside the room, sleeping heavily. I stood there my seven-year-old brain trying to fill in the black left by my limited view. I stared at the head on the pillow, shifting to my left, in a futile attempt to see more of the body to which that head belonged. I could make out the vague shapes of a body under a blanket, but my main focus was the only visible part of her, her head. As I turned back to my first position, a twig snapped under my foot, Inside the room, the head on that pillow turned toward me, and I could feel that person, I could feel my mom, looking into my eyes. We each held our gaze for what seemed like an eternity, and it was, above all else, a serene moment, the very first one shared between a mother and her son. I remember a warm breeze gently blowing past me, the sound of leaves rustling and crickets dancing. There was a peace in that moment that I hadn't experienced before and haven't since. The peace was broken when I heard my dad's voice calling out for me from the back porch. It startled me, and when I looked back at the window, the comforter was slowly, deliberately, being put back into its proper place, blocking all visibility into my mom's room. What I found odd, however, was that with my last glance into the room... I saw my mom still lying down, still looking at me. With my dad at the back porch and my mom in bed, who moved the comforter back? That question plagued me for five years, up until the second and last time I laid eyes on my mother. When I was eight years old, my dad informed me that he was going to be doing work in the basement, and as such, it was now strictly off-limits. It wasn't a finished basement, mostly just boxes and bins and other disorganized junk, so I didn't spend any time there anyway. But it was now deemed a space as forbidden as my mom's room. For the next two weeks, the normal sounds of my home were drowned out by a cacophony of drills and saws and hammers, as well as the increased frequency of the aforementioned shrieking that rang out from behind the third door on the left. As time went on, my curiosity only increased. At ten years old, I asked my dad that question that I can only assume he'd hoped he'd never hear. Why doesn't Mom ever come out of her room? I watched the color drain from my dad's face as he sat across from me at the dinner table. As a tense pause lingered between us, a sound that had been becoming more and more frequent over the past year rang out, a sloshing sound not dissimilar from someone squeezing a wet sponge accompanied an occasional soft bang on the door and a quiet but lingering groan and it filled the air between us as my dad searched for an answer. She's sick, was all he managed to get out. We finished dinner with an awkward silence hanging between us, that and the music of misery that was the soundtrack of my mom's room. That's how it was between my dad and me. Aside from that one time when I was ten, we left the elephant in the room unaddressed. When I was eleven, however, I became more brazen in my curiosity. I began paying more attention to my dad. As time passed, he spent more and more time in the basement, which meant less time with my mom. The screaming became so frequent that he soundproofed a room and although it certainly muffled the sounds of anguish, it didn't mute them completely. Besides, there were more noises now than just the ones coming from down the hall. Now they were coming from below me. I'd put my ear to the hardwood floor and listen, and I'd hear several different distinct groans and moans and screams. Once, or rarely... Twice a month, my dad would remand me to my room under threat of extreme grounding, and over the course of about two hours, those collective pain sounds of agony would cease, one by one, until they were all silent. At that point, my dad's van would pull out of the driveway, and I was allowed to leave my room. This was the way things were until about six months before I turned 13. It was a Thursday night, around 10 p.m. I was in bed trying to fall asleep against the sounds of what seemed to be an especially uneasy night in the basement and my mom's room. Screams were as loud as they had ever been, the most prominent of them, the very first one I'd ever heard. But then another scream joined the chorus, and though I'd never heard him scream before, I knew it belonged to my dad. He bellowed out in what seemed to be incredible pain, "'then started howling my name. "'Nick! Help me! Help me, please! "'Nick! Help me! Help me!' "'I leaped up from the bed and looked down the hall. "'It sounded like a tornado was occurring in my mom's room. "'Wood splintering, glass breaking, "'the wall being smashed into, maybe even through. "'The light underneath the door was flickering wildly. "'There was a ton of movement within. "'I ran to the door, from behind which my father's pain shrieks, although by that point they were slowly becoming muffled and turning into more of a gurgling noise. I knew that he left the door unlocked when he was in my mom's room because he knew he could count on my never ever going inside, not with the amount of reprimanding he'd promised would follow. But now I had to. I stood at the door for what seemed like a lifetime in that moment, But it was truly only a second or two. I was finally going to see my mom face to face.
0: Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take, whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start, but now all you need to do is Angie that Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America NA, member FDIC.
1: No matter what horrors were happening inside that room, something good would come from it. I was afraid, more afraid than I've ever been, but held on to that idea as I turned the heavy brass knob and opened the third door on the left. I vomited immediately. For as bad as the smell was in the rest of the house, the room from which it was birthed was worse a thousand times over. It was a putrid aroma of feces, urine, blood, and any other number of horrible scents. But what was worse was what I was seeing. I'm not sure there are words in the English or any other language that can adequately describe what I saw, but I'll use whatever words at my disposal to paint as clear a picture as I can. The room was an absolute mess, broken wooden glass. The drywall had been torn from a large majority of the walls, the slats behind it broken and jagged. Blood and a clear liquid had been splashed all around the room, and the floor was slick with it, pooling in certain areas. The hardwood floor had been gouged and was ripped completely apart in certain spots. The centerpiece of the room, however, was my mother. The headboard of the bed was still visible, but that was about it. Her naked body had grown out with a series of what at first appeared to be tumor-like growth until she took up nearly three-quarters of the room I could just barely make out her face in the sea of jagged skin, which, in addition to the various growths, was peppered with countless bleeding sores and, in some spots, holes that led within her body, along with all the muscles and tissue visible inside. My father was nearly halfway down one of the wells that led into my mother. His screams, nothing more than what sounded like shouts underwater— His legs flailed wildly until they didn't. Once he stopped fighting, he was slowly consumed by the mass of flesh. I stood there in abject horror as my mom's eyes turned to me and teared up. She moaned in pain, the most misery I could ever imagine a person being in. I didn't know what to do. I wasn't equipped to respond to what I was seeing, and I was even less equipped for what followed. The tumorous growth nearest to me began to break open, clear, thick water spilling out of it. Then something reached out and pulled itself through the opening. The thing was a mass of stringy limbs, as many as six arms and more legs. Teeth jouted out from all over it, separate from and inside multiple mouths that contained long, wet tongues, and it had numerous blinking eyes. It screamed... It screamed loud and long, and it seemed to be in pain. That's when I noticed the floor just past it. It had been removed, and the thing that was presumably once my mother had grown downward toward the basement. My dad's keys were on the floor next to the door, so I picked them up and ran to the basement door. It took me a minute, but I unlocked the five locks and descended the basement stairs, Down the stairs and to the right was the rest of her and them. She had grown down all the way to the floor and there were more of the limbed things writhing about. More of them, at least 50 in varying sizes, were piled up on opposite sides of the basement from where the crooked mass that was my mother fed through the floor. Another of her sores burst, another monster falling out of it, I didn't know what to do. I was in shock. I stood there for at least a half hour watching these things be born into misery. Their mess of arms and legs and teeth and eyes begging to understand what and why they were. I finally snapped out of it and turned to go back upstairs and that's when I noticed a message etched onto the back of the basement door. Nick, if you are seeing this, Take the gun at the bottom of the stairs and kill her. Sure enough, there was a shotgun positioned at the bottom of the stairs. I went back down and grabbed it, then meekly made my way to my mom's room. A clear liquid from within her had formed a thin river down the hallway, which I avoided as I made the trek back to my room. My legs shook so violently that I nearly crumbled with every step. I'd never fired a gun before. I didn't even know we'd had one. We lived in the country, in a place that could be somewhat accurately described as in the middle of nowhere, but we didn't live a country lifestyle. I had the common sense for how to operate a pump-action Mossberg 590, but it was nearly as big as me and far more intimidating. I took a reluctant step back into the room where my bloodied, wounded, and presently birthing mother was howling in pain. I nearly vomited again when I saw my dad. From a gaping wound on the side that faced me, his mangled, twisted body began being ejected. But my mother's gaze took my attention away from that. I took apprehensive, uneasy steps towards her, shaking so much that, in retrospect, I find it to be a miracle the shotgun didn't go off prematurely. Her face was like any other. The stretching and growth of her body hadn't affected it at all. She had glistening brown eyes that hypnotized me when I looked into them, and I truly believed that she must have been beautiful before. All that. But right then, in that room, part of her brain was visible in the mass of tangled, unkempt hair. She was an amorphous blob of skin and blood and bones, and sinew in mouths and teeth, and perhaps most noticeably, fear. I looked into her shining eyes, eyes still so full of life, and I saw fear, pure fear, anguish, misery, pain, fatigue. While her mouths moaned and groaned and screamed, her eyes begged for mercy, begged for all of it to end. I sobbed. I was experiencing so many things all at once that I could feel my body and mind nearly shut down entirely. There was a fear I hadn't known and hadn't known since. There was a confusion at what it was I was witnessing and doing at that moment. There was apprehension towards pulling a trigger and ending a life. There was bereavement for my father, whom at that very moment I became very aware of no longer having in my life there was happiness, a small sliver of happiness. I'd finally met my mom. It didn't matter that she was this mutated, mangled mess that had grown to nearly the size of a room and down into the basement. It didn't matter that she had hideous, bulbous growths and sores all over her body. It didn't matter that she had consumed my father and spit him out like a chicken bone. It didn't matter that, at that moment, she had unimaginable horrors falling out of her wounds and thrashing around in perceived malignancy. She was my mom. She was my mom and she needed help. I used all my strength to pull back on the hand grip and load it around into the shotgun. I lifted it and looked into my mom's eyes, which sparkled under the bright light above. I watched a tear roll down her her. "'traveled down where her cheek would have been, "'eventually getting lost in the crease of bruised, jagged skin. "'Her eyes said more than any of her mouths ever could. "'Her eyes told me she loved me and that what I was doing was okay, "'that it was what she wanted. "'I tried to say, I love you, "'but the words got caught in my dry throat and were barely intelligible, "'and she just looked at me, pleading with her eyes.' I cleared my throat and said it again I love you mom and I pulled the trigger my ears rang after the deafening blast from the shotgun exploded from the barrel and splattered me, the walls and everything else with a mess of blood and that clear watery substance tumors still opened and those things still wriggled out I stood there for a moment my world spinning around me I then felt a tug at the bottom of my pajama pants. I looked down and found a gelatinous pile of wet skin and teeth and tongues and holes with one of, that I could see, three arms reaching out, its four jagged, bleeding fingers curled around the cotton at my ankle. I didn't want to do it. I honestly didn't. It just just seemed like mercy. I killed it. Then I killed another. Then another. I killed them until there were no more shells in the gun. There were more lumps on my mom's corpse, with things squirming underneath. I didn't have it in me to keep looking into those things' many eyes and ending them. As another monster broke free from the mass that dwelt behind the third door on the left and down into the basement, I retrieved both of the gas cans my dad kept on the back porch, followed by the propane tank from the grill. And then I listened to it all burn. The screams of agony dwindled as the flames roared, the short, miserable lives of my brothers and sisters ending in a violent cocktail of gas and fire and smoke. My new reality dawned on me as I walked the 11 miles into town and to the police station. My dad was dead, gone. And at the time I thought I'd remember him as a man who, however selfish it may have been, loved his wife so much he did everything he could to keep her alive with him. But nearly a half million dollar payout from the will of a man who made less than $10,000 a year and didn't have life insurance led me to question who he really was and added to the already mountainous amount of questions I had had about the circumstances surrounding my mother. I've accepted that I'll likely never know the truth about why my dad kept my mom alive, if it was out of love or some other more nefarious reason. What I do know is that I've chosen to believe that my mom loved me, that she really did ask after me in between her ever-increasing bouts of misery and birthing, And I know that I loved her. And I know that she needed to be set free. I hope you enjoyed Hug Your Mother by author Nick Boddock, as performed by yours truly. If you enjoyed that first tale, and would love to read more from tonight's very talented feature author, you can help him... Uh, supporting him by visiting simplyscarypodcast.com slash bodic. That's simplyscarypodcast.com slash b-o-t-i-c. This Milwaukee native has quite a few stories under his belt, well over 100 in fact, and would love to share his love of the macabre with you. If you do decide to stop by the profile, Please leave Nick a kind word and let him know you heard about him here on this show and that Otis Jiry sent you. It would mean a lot to me and to Nick as well. Thanks again for your support of this program and of tonight's featured author. It's probably just as well for the fellow in our last story to have dealt with his twisted brothers and sisters as he did you have 50 siblings and 200 miles to feed, the bills can rack up pretty quickly. If you're the kind of person who has to get away from it all, it helps to have a place of solitude to retreat to, like a cabin in the middle of nowhere. But what happens when your trip to be alone brings you the attention of someone or something you don't expect? In our second tale from Nick Boddick, we shall see some unexpected guests can be more persuasive than others. Without further ado, I present to you The Value of the Human Soul. I can feel it coming, slowly but surely. With everything going on, all the stay-at-home orders, I decided to go to the place in which I find the most peace high in the mountains of my home state. I have a cabin that was left to me by my father, who in turn inherited it from his. Some people might not care much for it, but for me it's absolutely perfect. I was safe in my journey to the cabin. I only interacted with two people, both of whom were necessary to interact with. I wore a mask and gloves, the whole deal. That's why on my third night there, I was both frightened and confused as to why I was feeling so ill. It began with a headache, a minor one. As the day continued, though, the headache got worse. I took as much medicine as I could, but it didn't abate. I lay down to try to sleep it off, and sleep I did for about two hours, but when I woke up, the pain had increased a hundredfold. It was that kind of headache that nearly blinds you, where every noise, every light makes you want to curl up into a ball and die. I thought about going to an emergency room, but the nearest one was in a town that was in ideal condition, about a half hour away, and there was no chance that I could make such a drive in the state I was in, let alone in the snowstorm outside. The sun had set, but it was no reprieve from the agony. The headache had forced me to squint my eyes when I dared to open them. Otherwise, I knew I'd fall victim to a surge of pain that would literally bring me to my knees. The night up in that mountain brought with it the type of silence you can't really find anywhere else. A sort of calm in nature. A tranquility in your surroundings, where, if the wind stops you could experience the most serene lack of distraction possible. It was during one of those moments that I first heard it. The sun had just set and I was lying in bed, halfway to wanting to kill myself. Then there was a knock on the door to my cabin, but it was quiet, quiet enough that if I wasn't sure if it was real or simply my mind playing tricks on me. I remember that I thought to myself and not out loud, someone out there? No, there, there can't be. Then it responded. There can be. There is. I didn't say anything, though. The words just materialized in my head. It was the most surreal thing I'd ever experienced. It was confusing, intriguing, frightening, and painful all at once. I said out loud, Who is there? and my own voice sent needles piercing through my brain, which in turn made me clutch my head and grit my teeth. My eyes had been shut, and I tried opening them, the slightest bit but the slivers of moonlight coming in through the cracks in the blinds were too much to bear. There was silence for a moment, and then I thought to myself, Now I'm hearing things. God, please make this stop. Please, please, please pleading to whoever or whatever could hear my thoughts to make the anguish stop. Then more words crept into my psyche. God can't help you. I can. At that point, I knew I wasn't imagining it and I swung my legs off the bed. When I stood up, I had to steady myself, but it wasn't enough. I quickly vomited all over the floor and my feet. I was dizzy, was in the worst pain I'd ever experienced, and more than anything, I was afraid. It's not easy to rationalize auditory hallucinations. I knew I wasn't imagining this voice in my head, but I still attributed it to the headache to end all headaches. Through squinted eyes, I made my way into the kitchen of my cabin, every step sending pain darting through my body and up into my brain. When my baby steps finally got me to the sink, I splashed water in my face and leaned on the counter, my head banging like so many drums. I thought to myself, oh god, oh my god, please make this stop, just kill me. Not just yet. I spun around and almost passed out. Who's there? I yelled, followed by a thought, I'm the only one around here for miles. I've been here much longer than you. I was almost in tears. Who's who's there? I don't even care who it is. I just need help. I can help you, Nicholas. I'm coming in. I looked towards the door, which slowly started creaking open. I swear I locked it. You did. It's of no concern to me. With the moonlight pouring in at its back, a silhouette came into view. The jet-black figure was the shape of a man, to be sure, but it was like it was made of fog. It stood like any person would, but it had fog or steam or smoke sifting off of it. Had I not already been buffered by my current state of crippling pain, I think I might have collapsed from fear. As I leaned on the kitchen counter, it took a step towards me, and in that moment, I could actively feel the pain in my head lessen. And so it went, with every step it took towards me. I went from wanting to eat a bullet, to having a headache that, while well, still several times the normal migraine, was no longer the completely defeating agony it was just prior moments before. With my eyes finally halfway open, I saw that this visitor wasn't simply the moonlight Behind it, making it appear the jet-black color, it was featureless, a man-shaped mass of lightly smoking darkness. You're starting to feel better, yes? It still wasn't actually talking. Yeah, how? I asked it. Sit, Nicholas. How do you know my name? I pinched the bridge of my nose and pulled a chair out from the kitchen table. I know much more than your name. Who are you? It finally spoke. Its voice was deep, gravelly. It would seem I am your saving grace. There was an awkward silence as I tried to open my eyes further. My mind couldn't make sense of what I was looking at, and I was subconsciously trying to rationalize it. I've been on this mountain a long time. And who are you? How did you get in here? With the pain somewhat alleviated, the bizarre nature of the situation was beginning to dawn on me. You invited me, it said. Well, I did. (laughs) My response wasn't born of confidence, but of adrenaline and fear. But you did. Not so much directly, but in your actions. My, my actions? I feigned ignorance. The thing that was talking to me was tall. Six foot eight, by my guess. And it loomed over the small table as it talked to me. It didn't have eyes, but I could feel it staring directly into mine. Your actions, Nick. You know of which actions I speak. I, uh, I don't. Who are you? I began getting frustrated at its evasion. Get out of my goddamn cabin. I started to stand up, but the visitor raised a smoky hand and in a split second the full force of my abated headache returned, drilling back into my forehead and the backs of my eyes and sending me tumbling back into my chair. It's a goddamn place, isn't it? A place damned by God, certainly. You've seen to that. I clutched my forehead in agony and my voice dropped down to a whisper. Please. "'Please stop. Please make it stop. I'm sorry. Please stop.' The visitor lowered its hand, and I let out a relieved gasp as the pain subsided once again. "'What do you want?' I asked again. "'I want to leave, Nicholas. You have my gratitude for finally affording me the opportunity to do so. "'What do you... you want my car? "'Take it. Take my car.' The keys are... uh, I'll get you the keys. I knew that wasn't what it wanted, but my fear wasn't allowing me to think rationally. I quickly stood from the chair to go get my keys. Sit! Again, the pain returned. It was so bad, this time I was shaking, all the while holding back tears. Why are you doing this to me? I barely managed to get out, As I said, your actions brought me here. Every visit you make up here, Nicholas, you've brought me closer to being able to leave this place. And this time will be the last. I can feel it. You need to finish what you started on your way here. I I don't know what you mean. I pleaded. You don't know? No, I, I swear I don't know what you want me to do. Is that right? The visitor thrust his hand under the table and flipped it like a feather. It flew across the kitchen and landed on top of the counter and sink, splintering the wooden legs and shattering the glass it landed upon. I let out a scream and cowered in my chair. Stand, Nicholas. Its tone was calm, but nevertheless demanding. Stand and step off the rug. I hesitated for a moment, but ultimately stood fearing that it would raise its hand again. Move the chair. I abided, sliding the chair off the rug while the visitor nudged the chair it was standing next to, sending it crashing into the kitchen counter and splintering into several pieces. Move the rug, it demanded. Please, please, I'm I'm sorry. The rug, Nicholas. I was reduced to sobs as I leaned down and began sliding the rug across the floor. Please, please, don't make me. I'm so sorry, I begged. Nicholas, if were it not for this, I would still be condemned to this place. Surely you understand. Do continue. I pulled the rug further, revealing a trapdoor in the floor. Open it. I wiped the tears from my eyes and knelt down. And with a shaking hand, I slid the lock to the side and twisted the handle. Pulling it up, then yanked up the door itself, revealing a set of rickety wooden steps that led to the cellar. Get your light, it said. Please, I quietly cried, please don't. If you'd rather go with no light, it's of no concern to me. No, no, I'll... I stood and walked to the kitchen counter, then took a flashlight from the drawer at the end. I walked back to the square, opening in the floor, and shined it down. The visitor gestured for me to go down the steps, and I obliged. Each step groaned against the cement walls, and the temperature noticeably dropped as the putrid stench hit me like a brick wall. I kept a few jars of preserves down there on rickety metal shelving units, "'all of which had collected a thick layer of dust. "'When we made it to the dirt floor, "'I shined my light ahead and it landed on the door "'at the opposite end of the cellar. "'I knew that that was where he wanted to go. "'Even still, I stopped, hoping against hope "'that this was all some awful nightmare. "'Go! "'Please, please don't!' I begged. "'But the visitor wasn't persuaded.' Open the door. There wasn't any hint of me having a choice in its voice. I stepped up to the door and grabbed a key off the wooden workbench next to it, unlocked the door and started to open it. I took one look back at the visitor, who made no gesture, but the stoicism said everything. I pointed a light at the ground in front of me and swung the creaking door open. Ah, it said as I hung my head completely defeated. There they are. I shined my light ahead, casting a pale glow across the two people with whom I interacted on my way up to the cabin a few days prior, a woman and her daughter. There they sat, hands tied behind their backs, mouths covered with duct tape. Were it not for my own immense terror, I would have found it a beautiful sight, their muffled sobs and screams, would have been music to my ears. The dried blood from the last person to be locked into that room was splattered against that of the person before them. This was once the room that I found the most peace in, where I was at my most content. I genuinely never thought it was going to be my own grave. I'm I'm, I'm sorry, I blubbered. I'll let them go. I'm sorry, please, please, let me go. Nicholas. Its tone was soft, almost comforting. I need you, and you need them. The visitor made its way around me, and as it made its silent steps, the mother scooted herself in front of her daughter. The visitor ran its inky hand through the older woman's hair. I've been on this mountain a long time, Nicholas. Banished here many millennia ago. I thought I might never find my way off it. But then you came. "'you with your hobby. "'Every time you've come to this place, Nicholas, "'every poor soul that has been damned in this room, "'it has brought me closer to being set free.' "'Set free?' "'At that point I was completely resigned. "'Whatever was going to happen was going to happen. "'I was still unbelievably afraid. there, "'But there was some sort of peace to be found.' In complete submission. Yes, set free. It explained. The darkness inside you, Nicholas. The void. Pure malice. The very same that makes me, me. They took it from me all those eons ago. Made me weak. I thought there might never be an opportunity to gain it again. Short of a war being fought in these hills. But then you brought a boy up here fourteen years ago. And I knew that if you ever returned, my luck would change. These two will complete it. So, complete it. The woman and her daughter cried, and I joined them. Please, let me go, I begged. Do what must be done, Nicholas. Know that you are doing me a great service. The next world you will have helped bring into reality. I looked behind me, defeated. I took a few wobbly steps and grabbed my instrument of choice, a hammer from the workbench. There were still the splashes and stains of red from the last people. It drank from on the claw. More of the visitor's words crept into my mind. Please know that your deaths will not be meaningless. I owe you a debt of gratitude for your part in the days to come. I heard the woman scream from behind her gag, a sound I would have reveled in were it not for the circumstances. I thought of swinging the hammer at the visitor, but common sense told me it would have made no use. If nothing else, I tried to take solace in the fact that the last thing I did in this life would be the one thing I truly loved. I'm not one for gratuitousness, so I feel no need to share the next few bloody details. When I was finished, the visitor took me back upstairs. Please, please. You can let me go now. I did what you needed, right? Please. Nicholas, that part was for you. Think of that part of you as a tank. The pure evil needed to do what you do, it fills that tank. That tank is now full. And now I need its contents. What does the visitor took its smoky hand and plunged it into my solar plexus. I can't describe what it felt like because the moment its hand touched me, I fell unconscious. When I came to on the floor of the kitchen in my cabin, it was two days later, which is now two days ago. The visitor was nowhere to be found. The smell from the basement had made its way upstairs and I immediately vomited, My headache was gone, but I felt weak, so weak. I took flimsy steps to the bathroom and looked in the mirror. I found that there was no longer any life in my eyes. My skin was some shade of gray, if not outright pale white. My teeth had gone through several years of rotting in less than 48 hours. I can hardly move. My bones are more brittle by the minute, it seems. I can feel it coming death. The soul is real, and without it the body cannot survive. As such, I took my limited time left in this world to write this, for two reasons. The first is a confession. Forty steps south, twenty-two steps east, you will find my previous guests beginning there, and every twenty steps moving east, thereabout. The second purpose is to warn you. Judge me as you will." I'll have no regrets for the things I've done in this life. If given a chance to do it all over again, I wouldn't change a thing, except perhaps the location of my workshop. Aside from that, despite the fact that I may view you all as little more than lambs for me to lead to slaughter, you deserve to know. Something was on this mountain, and I'm sorry for setting it loose. I don't know what it has planned now that it has been freed from its bindings, but I'm happy that I won't be around to find out. Good luck to you. I hope you enjoyed The Value of the Human Soul by author Nick Boddock, as performed by yours truly. I don't know what he unleashed upon this earth with his shenanigans, but I recall a cousin who had a really bad headache a few weeks ago. Turned out it was just a few earwig eggs in his brain, and a little work with a corkscrew cleared that right up. If you've enjoyed the tales you've heard tonight, I'd like to remind you one last time that tonight's featured author can be found by visiting our website just visit simplyscarypodcast.com slash bodic. That's simplyscarypodcast.com slash b-o-t-i-c. Not only is he a prolific author, but he has a video series about the real stories behind creepypastas, several books, and ghostly tales to give you shivers then you can shake living set of antlers at. As a reminder, if you do decide to give any of this talented author's stories a read, please consider leaving him a quality review and a kind word, or a thoughtful public comment and an upvote, and be sure to let them know that you heard them right here on this program and that Otis Gyre sent you. It means more to me than you can imagine, and I'm sure Nick would much appreciate it also. Thanks again for your support of this show and of tonight's featured author. Now, before we go, I'd also like to take a moment to thank you personally for joining me for this episode of Scary Stories Told in the Dark. If you've enjoyed what you've heard on today's program, please take a moment to stop by our iTunes page or wherever else you listen to your favorite podcasts and leave us a five-star review and a kind word. It makes a huge difference, and it would mean a lot to us. If you'd like to hear a premium extended edition of tonight's and all of our other episodes featuring twice the terror, visit simplyscarypodcast.com today and click the Patrons link in the menu at the top of the screen. You'll find yourself at ChillingTalesForDarkNights.com where you can purchase season passes for this podcast and our other quality storytelling programs. Or become a patron for as little as $5 per month and get access to our entire audio archive dating back to 2012, all of it ad-free. If you happen to use Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or YouTube... You can follow and subscribe to Chilling Tales for Dark Nights there where you'll get all of our latest updates and new releases and have the chance to interact with us each and every week. You can subscribe to me on YouTube as well at the Otis Gyrie channel where you'll find releases of my series, Horror Storytime dating back to 2014. And you can find me on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram too Just search for Otis Gyrie. Until next week, stay spooky and get some sleep, (laughs) if you can.